Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. What's going on, all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, that mildly rambunctious Corey Caesar. Episode 45 in this cold bitch. And it is cold, man. It went from summer to winter here in Northwest Indiana. It really did. And apparently, we're just going to go ahead and uh, skip my favorite season, which is fall. You know, that good hoodie weather with jeans in the ni- at the nighttime and a nice t-shirt and jeans during the uh, during the daytime. Not too hot, not too cold, no sweat, no chill. It's like perfect. And, and then usually a little bit less rain than spring. I mean, it's like it's the perfect temperature. Um, and I guess I really shouldn't call what's going on right now winter per se. This uh, weather is more like pre-cum of winter. And uh, nobody really likes that pre-cum. Let's be, let's be honest with ourselves, right? Um, now this drop in temperature also means, you know, spider season is among us, guys. And our eight-legged friends will once again be moving into our homes to enjoy the hat winter, rent free, nips go free, ya dicks. Um, and I actually got out of my shower this morning and had a nice little like quarter size Charlotte creeping up on me. And just so we're kind of all on the same page here, I am no Wilbur, so I murdered that guy or girl, gender neutral. Don't really know. Um, speaking of murder, this is a serial killer edition. I'm probably going to give you two of these this month because the witching season is among us. Um, you know, it is the month of All Hallows Eve. Um, and our story today actually starts, although ironically, where my spider story ended, and that was with a corpse. Um, this particular corpse lay between the rows of stacked railroad ties, if you've ever been to a train yard. And this, this train yard was the SEPTA train yard in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and is at the corner of Penn and Bridge Street in the lower northeast section of um, the city and this this little neighborhood is known as Frankfurt. Now, transit workers found the dead woman around 8.30 in the morning. Um, on August 26th, 1985, your boy was three. Um, it, it wasn't real clear who she was at the time. Now, this, this victim, this lady, she was nude from the waist down. And she was kind of posed in a sexually provocative position with her legs open and her blouse pulled up to expose her breasts. Um, by the next day, um, the uh, investigators had identified her as Helen Patton, and she lived in Parkland, Pennsylvania, which was a town in nearby Bucks County. She was 52 at the time, and uh, while it was clear to police that she had been stabbed many times, they wanted to do an autopsy um, to, 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 you know, to make sure, and the autopsy um, did determine, obviously, that she had been stabbed to death. Helen Patton also was sexually assaulted she had 47 of these stab wounds to her head and chest. She had also been stabbed in the right arm and had one vicious and deep slash across her abdomen that kind of exposed her internal organs. 
Now, there, there were some discrepancies on the number of stab wounds that were inflicted on her. Michael Newton, who has written two books on the killings, contends it was 19 and not 47. Either way, she was Billy Loomis to death. What's the matter, Sydney? You look like you've seen a ghost. Don't play the game, Sydney. It's called Guess How I'm Gonna Die! Creating a timeline of her final hours, detectives determined that Patton was last seen at her home on August 19th, as reported by Kermit Patton, who was her former husband. Now, who names her fucking kid Kermit? You guys gotta do better, parents. Mr. KT Frog here um, identified the body and affirmed that the murdered woman was Helen. Now, despite the fact that um, they were no longer married, they lived together in their Brooks, uh, Brooks County home, although he claimed that his wife had left a week before without mentioning where she was going to go. Um, and apparently that was not unusual because they live separate lives. I, I think it's a little strange. I think if you're going to do it for a week, you live with someone, you just be like, hey, probably not going to be back this week. You can bring your little hose by, get your dick wet. You know what I mean? Um, but But actually, those who knew her around Frankfurt area we're actually also surprised to learn that she even had a home outside the city. So it's like a little weird both ways. Um, there was no uh, immediate motive, but she uh, the, the kind of going theory by the popo was that she had been killed simply to keep her quiet. Now, according to reports, she frequent the bars in the area and might easily have met like a stranger and have been raped and murdered. Um, so basically they were just like, hey, they, 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 she was in this bar. She might have left with some dude she met in the bar. He raped her um, and, and then just murdered her to kind of just keep her quiet because he was worried about getting caught. Now, the newspapers did not discuss the possibility of prostitution, that maybe she was a prostitute. But as more such incidents kind of unfolded, um, this was considered a possibility. Over the next year and a half, three more victims were linked to Patton's killer, and the lo local newspaper would devise a name for this mysterious murder fiend, the Frankfurt slasher Ooh. early in 1986 on january 3rd the next stabbing victim was found and that was anna carroll 68 who lived in another philadelphia neighborhood on the 1400 block of rittner street um the door to her apartment was standing open on that cold day which is you know obviously people walking by it's like winter it's like why why is this why is your door open um and she she was found laying on the floor of of uh, her bedroom she also was nude from the waist down and she had been stabbed six times in the back with one gaping post-mortem uh, wound going from breast bone to groin as if the killer intended to gut the body. A kitchen knife had been left actually in her body. Um, a little pattern was developing here, partially nude, multiple stab wounds, and disembowelment. While the scene was 10 miles from where Helen Patton had been found, the brief time that had elapsed between the incidents and the, simil uh, the similarity of the conditions of the bodies as well as the incident's timing, both had uh, occurred during the night apparently, made authorities consider the possibility of a predator common to both victims. But even though they thought about the possibility, they didn't actively investigate them as such because, you know, why would you? And Carol, um, she also had been seeing these Frankfurt area bars. And um, so did the next victim who turned up murdered nearly a year later, which on Christmas Day. Uh, on the the Lord's Day, you know, uh, when neighbors found her door open, also like fuck, what the fuck, man? Here's another here's another home door open in the winter, maybe a dead body. Sure shit, there was, um, and and, and more uh, 
linking developments were happening here because all three of these victims now haven't seen that goldies um as no, and that was actually go, the golden bar but it was just known as goldies and it, it was situated in the 1500 block of frankfurt avenue um and it was kind of near the uh the elevated train terminal where that first body had been found susan olzelf 64 she was found in her apartment and had been stabbed six times in the back she lived on richmond street um, which was closer to the scene of the first murder by seven miles. Sounds to me like a little serial killer on the loose in the Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt neighborhood. So just for a little history here, um, Frankfurt began as a town older even than Pennsylvania itself. The area was first inhabited by the Lenape Indians and was later settled by the Swedes around 1660. The name Frankfurt originates from the manor of Frank, which was a land sale from William Penn to a group of uh, London Quaker businessmen called the Free Society of Traders that dates to 1687. The village um, was established in early 1680s and grew in the late 17th century with the building of the Quaker Meeting House, the opening of an inn and a post office, and the continued operation of some mills in the area. The existing Indian trail that ran through um, this area became the King's Highway and was established by the uh, a royal warrant a royal warrant in 1683, uh, then known as Main Street, and later Frankfurt Avenue. It's actually the oldest uh, country road in, the uh, in continuous use in the nation to this day. It has served as a major transportation route and commercial corridor for over 300 years. Um, in 1800, the village was incorporated into the borough of Frankfurt, and in 1854, absorbed into the city of Philadelphia through the 1854 Act of Consolidation. Now, besides being a historically significant neighborhood uh, in the history of our country, like like real significant, it has strong significant ties to the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Um, it was also famous as the winter headquarters for the traveling circuses, you know, because we've got to keep it diverse. Um, the neighborhood supported a symphony orchestra and a football team, obviously, which eventually became the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, the L, that elevated train, it arrived in 1922, bringing even more prosperity and industry as larger city, um, the larger city kind of subsumed the town, kind of just ate it up. Um, but by 1980, the place was kind of a crime-ridden slum, and it was populated heavily by prostitutes, junkies, and independent businesses just kind of struggling to survive. For, for a more um, visual of this area, because I, I know you all know it, Sylvester St Stallone selected this rundown area as a setting for uh, that 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 banger of a film, Rocky. Yep. Um, Frankfurt Avenue comprised a 13-block strip of diverse storefronts that sat kind of in the L shadow. So commuters kind of just disembarked at the busy train station, but usually scattered quickly to their homes. Among the problems that hindered the murder investigation was the fact that many people were drawn to the Frankfurt uh, Street simply because of its nightlife. One can grab a meal or coffee or buy some delicious liqueur uh, at any time they want, you know, any time, day or night. And that made it, you know, kind of just like a, a, a busy area. Um, it also made it a hot spot for, you know, prostitution and whatnot. Any anonymous mur uh, uh, murder it could kind of be committed easily by someone, you know, hop on the L dip out, might not even be from the area. 
might not even know that they're there. Um, another problem was that police did not yet, you know, accept that these three murders were even linked. And, and that was simply because they had occurred in different areas of the city. Ooh, so unique. Um, so they didn't have no hard leads after, you know, these three killings. But they were about to get another nasty surprise. By 7.30 a.m. on January 8th, 1987, the fourth victim had turned up. And that was Jeanne Durkin's body, which was discovered west of Frankfurt Avenue. Now, Jeanne Durkin, she lived on the streets. She was homeless, mostly in the doorway of an abandoned bakery two buildings away from Goldie's. She was only 28, so that was a little different. She was just a little younger. Um, her body was found by a restaurant employee um, beneath a storage truck on the uh, Pratt Street lot, which was west of Frankfurt Avenue, um, owned by a, by a fruit vendor. There are some discrepancies. Some some um, some writings claim that she was actually under, you know, like found under the fruit stand, like where they sold the fruits. But um, most accounts say she was beneath like a storage truck, and she had also been stabbed in the ch- uh, chest, buttocks, and back seventy four times. Man, that's a lot of stabbings, guys. Um, that just shows like just straight hate too, in my opinion. Um, and, and this was only one block from where that first uh, killing Helen Patton had been had been found. Um, lying in a pool of blood, Durkin was, just like these other bodies, nude from the waist down, and her legs were also spread. Blood was um, spattered against a fence and the side of this truck. Now, an autopsy indicated that she had also been sexually assaulted. Once she became victim number four, the newspaper paper kind of began to pressure the police to solve these crimes. It was clear by now that Philadelphia had a serial killer on the loose. In fact, between 1985 and 1989, the city of brotherly love, they experienced three separate series of brutal murders. This wasn't the only one going on. While the crimes of the Frankfurt slasher were being investigated, the police leaned from, uh, I'm sorry, learned from a woman um, who had kind of narrowly escaped from this eccentric man who was holding females prisoners uh, in his house in the North Marshall Street. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. Harold Sketcher um, told this story in the serial killer files. Um, One captive had died from hanging in uh, uh, chains for several days, and um, one had just been simply killed. The police invaded the home and found three more nearly dead women chained in a filthy basement. Crazy. Um, a man named Gary Hennick had used them as sex slaves, apparently. Uh, after his arrest, he admitted to eating pieces of one victim and feeding some of his uh, his other prisoners. Um, some of them, them cannibalized uh, human meat also and uh, you know the shameless shameless promo go back and listen to the last episode cannibalism if you have not um, then on a, on, a, on a sweltering August day in 1987 Harrison Marty Graham was evicted from his North Philadelphia apartment because of obnoxious odors he left but what did not leave was that smell and in fact it worsened so the police Obviously, they're like, man, we can't get this smell. You should probably go in here. 
So they came in and they discovered the decomposing corpses of six women with the remains of a seventh. Now, this Graham dude, he tried to claim that the bodies were, uh, <laughs> were, were there when he moved in. He's like, I moved in. All these bodies were here. I just kind of chilled with them. I figured they were just like porcelain dolls. We were just going to be friends. You know, I had someone to talk to. I thought it was great. I thought they were my roomies. They weren't really chipping in rent. But, you know, they're here, kind of like them spiders, not really chipping in rent. But they're here. Um, but then, obviously, he confessed to strangling them all during sex. He was one of those guys. Some of you ladies that like that that, uh, that asphyxiation while you're getting banged out, you know, you can die. Um, despite his insanity plea, uh, a judge convicted him in every case. Because, I mean... You literally had the bodies in your body. You're like, no, just, they were just here. I don't think that was a hard conviction. Uh, so with, with these three separate groups of killings, the two we just talked about, and then obviously the, you know, the, the slashings we've been, we've been discussing, uh, the public was kind of growing. Un, 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 there, was, there was public unrest growing. They were getting a little, it's like, what the fuck's going on here? A lot of murders. What's the police doing here? Um, so authorities... Because they're like, fuck, man, it's bad publicity. They quickly formed a task force to canvas the Frankfurt Avenue neighborhood to see if they could find anyone who had witnessed anything related to these victims. They questioned a female bartender at Goldie's for several hours because she had seen the women. And uh, she even knew Durkin um, often came in during the winter to get uh, to get warm. So she kind of just came in. She was homeless. She would just come in and kind of just chill there just to get warm even if she wasn't drinking. Um. They talked with a lot of these customers, both past and present. The bartender, D. Hughes, told Thomas Gibbons from the Inquirer that uh, she figured the the killer was was a customer. Now, she quote, was quoted as saying, I honestly, be- I honestly believe it was someone that comes in here and got to know them. Um, she indicated a, a, a man whom she suspected, but could not offer anything other than she had... Um, than, than what she'd actually just seen, just conversation, basically. Not, nothing real significant. Um, Olzif had been in the bar only three days before she was murdered, and she talked to people. But Carol, the other lady, she kind of kind of generally just kept to herself and bought her own drinks. She really wasn't interested too much in having um, dudes buy her drinks or, or being very conversational to people. She kind of just was there for the liquor itself. Um, according to the interviews, those who knew the fourth victim... They didn't really believe, though, that she could have been um, overwhelmed easily, at, easily. And the police also agreed because apparently at one point, six policemen had tried to arrest her for some other crime. And uh, she struggled so much that they just were like, fuck it. And they gave up. I don't, I don't know. I mean, obviously. That's a huge bitch. Because, I mean, what the fuck? Are you just going to give up? Like, fuck it, man. This this woman, this, this woman, she's fucking us six dudes up. We're just going to leave. Like, all right, you, you go home. Um, So that led investigators to believe, though, that she must have known her attacker and that he had used maybe fam, fam, uh, familiarity and deception instead of strength to get her into kind of a, you know, a vulnerable position. A woman named Michelle Martin, who also frequent uh these, like, these, these bars in the area had argued with Durkin over a blanket just the night before her death, but nothing uh, more actually tied Martin to the victim, but this little argument and police didn't think it was that serious enough to, they, they kept her as like a, a, a little, a little, uh, 
uh, possibility of, of, a, of a suspect, but not, not really. Um, in and out of mental institutions, Durkin had been living on the streets for the past five years. She was savvy and independent. Some people felt the same about Helen Patton, um, believing she would never have gone with a stranger to a train yard. Um, so police were stumped. They, they had nothing, no real leads. On January 20th, 50 people from the neighborhood brought candles to the L to pray for these victims and alert the killer that they were, you know, we're, we're on the lookout for you, like a little neighborhood watch going on here. Uh, many wept in the street for the women, apparently, um, and, the, and the mother of four who had been a part of their community. Among them was a man who had hoped to marry her by the summer. Uh, in Israel, he actually planted two trees um, in her memory. Uh, it's weird, but okay. Uh, by January 1988, though, as recorded in the papers, the police had tentatively decided that the killings might not be related. Yeah. Despite their similar circumstances. They're like, man, we, we can't find a, a killer so it's, it's, it must be multiple killers. That's what we'll tell the public and make them feel better. But over the next year, they kind of had to rethink their position because, you guessed it, another, another murder victim. Margaret Vaughn, 66, she was found laying in the foyer of her apartment building at the 4900 uh, block of Penn Street. She had technically lived in an apartment there but had been evicted the same day for non-payment of rent. Like, how weird is that? She was stabbed 29 times, and she had been killed just three blocks from where um, Jan Durkin was found earlier in the year. A bartender recalled that Vaughn had been in that bar the evening before with a Caucasian man, so it's the first little bit of a lead, and this dude had a round face who walked with a limp and wore glasses. I mean, it sounds like a pimp to me. Just missing the cane, boy. Um, they they had been drinking together. The witness was able to provide enough details for the police artist to make a sketch, um, which was distributed around town. Yet, no one came forward to identify him. Then on January 19th, 1989, Teresa Scarantino, age 30, she was found in her apartment, stabbed 25 times. She lived alone, uh, and this took place on Eric Street, which is three blocks from the fifth victim and a block and a half um, from Frankfurt Avenue itself. Like Durkin, she too had been in several psychiatric institutions and was currently on outpatient under treatment. When she was discovered, she was wearing only a pair of white socks, and she had been left in a pool of blood on her kitchen floor, lying face up again. The attacker um, had used a sharp knife to slash her 25 times in the face, arms, and chest, and had also used a three-foot piece of wood to sexually assault her. Yes, a three-foot, not a three-inch, and that's not a you know, so that's not a male exaggeration here. You know, three-foot—that's fucking crazy. Um, he placed the blood-stained weapon leaning against the sink, and left a bloody footprint behind. So that was. The next little bit of a clue they had. Um, a neighbor apparently heard a struggle even the, the evening before, um, along with a loud thump, as if a, uh, a large object had been thrown on the floor. Now, detectives kind of confirmed that the condition of the apartment indicated that an intense struggle might have occurred there, um, moving from one run room to another, and blood was spattered pretty much everywhere. 
Um, Scorantino, like the other victims, she also frequented the Frankfurt Avenue Strip and often entertained the male companions. One of her neighbors said, you know, she had a lot of company. Questioning confirmed that she was last seen alive at the Jolly Post Tavern. Excuse me. Um, at Griscom and Eric Streets, erroneously famous for being one of George Washington's overnight stops. Ooh, when, uh, you know, a good old honest, you know, jo- George Washington never told a lie. And, uh, but, but apparently this might have been a lie because he was allegedly laying dick into women, you know, not named Martha. But that's just a, you know, that's just, that, that, that's just conjecture. There's, there's, you know, uh, allegedly, I use allegedly. Don't, don't sue me, George. <laughs> um, Someone had, uh, someone had seen her uh, in the company of a middle-aged white man. Another, uh, here we go again. The same thing that this 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 white man coming up again, um, just after six, and not long afterward, her neighbor heard that scuffle in the apartment. So they were they thought you know that this must be the dude. Detective Lieutenant um, James Henwood told reporters that with the sixth victim um, in the area, they had returned to the possibility that the serial killer was operating in the neighborhood, but medical examiner Paul Hoyer had accepted the common but mistakenly notion that serial killers kill much more frequently with only a few weeks between their attacks. So he was like on the opposite of the police. Like, nah, I can't be a serial killer. Serial killers only kill, you know, they, they got to kill, you know, every couple weeks, which is just fucking moronic. What a moronic idea. I can't believe people actually used to believe that. Um, yet, yet the facts were clear, right? All the victims had been white women and while their age is different, different, um, they differed dramatically from 28 to 68. They had frequented the same area, had been viciously stabbed and had been killed in ways that left little evidence and no witnesses along with obviously the, the, the raping and the, the body staging. Um, detectives pointed to box loads of transcripts from interviews they had done with employees and patrons in the area, which hadn't turned up a single lead except for that one drawing, which really wasn't even a lead. I mean, it just looks like a million other people. Um, they searched sewers and trash bins in the area um, in, in the hope of finding a murder weapon in, in that Skirontino's uh, case, but did not comment on the results. But later it was revealed that they, you know, they, they found nothing. Um, the victim's families felt it was urgent that the killer be caught before he had the chance, obviously, to kill anyone else. And they did not get their wish, though, because on April 29, 1990, at nearly 2 in the morning, a patrol officer discovered the new body of Carol Dowd, who was 46, and she was found in the alley behind Newman's Seafood. Her head and face were battered, and she had been viciously stabbed 36 times, in the face, neck, chest, and back. In addition, again, her stomach was also cut open, allowing her intestines to spill out through a long wound, and her left nipple was actually removed. So that was a little different. Um, she also had defensive wounds on her hands, as if she had uh, uh, warded off her attacker. The officer who found her had been checking the area, I guess due to some prior burglaries. And it was estimated that Dowd had been murdered sometime after midnight, but before 1.40 a.m. She had resided not far from this area, from this scene, 
and a witness told police that she had been seen uh that she had seen down walking with an older white man only a few hours before her clothing was found near her body and her open purse was in the alley but the contents were kind of spilled all over the ground and nothing was taken so the money was still there it, it didn't look like anything was actually uh, stolen so robbery was kind of ruled out at this as this motive um although for some reason it, it would be later re- reconsidered by the by these popos running this investigation um, her brother told reporters that dowd's life had been kind of uneventful until the late 1960s when their brother died and she began to hear voices she was then diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and she too was institutionalized after being released into the commu- uh, into a community-based program, she moved into an apartment where she was raped. Lately, however, she had been living in a community facility where she appeared to kind of been happy. The police immediately suspected the same killer from the six previous cases in the area. They hypothesized, and simply I might add, um, that he had followed each of his victims after they left the area bars uh, at night and then snatch them up. I kind of feel a little different because I see another, uh, I kind of see another little um, link here and that a lot of these women were coming out of mental institutions. Some of them claimed that he, they must've been some familiarity with the, cause you know that, that they didn't believe that person could be overpowered. How do we not know it wasn't someone that worked at these hospitals who was, coming and just knocking on their apartment doors. I'm assuming since they were institutionalized, they kept track of where they lived, knocked on the door and was like, hey, just come and do a little checkup on you. Never know, just a theory, just throwing it out there. Um, Asking around, they interviewed the employees of the fish market. And this dude, Leonard Christopher, who worked there and also lived nearby. So... um, Here's where this this story starts taking this this weird turn. Now he had told reporters that the store had been burglarized several times recently. So when he had seen the police in the alley that morning, he just thought there was a break in again. Either that, or they were busting someone for drugs or prostitution because both activities were frequent occurrences in that alley. Then he learned that the police were in fact investigating a murder, though. They interviewed him, and he admitted that he had also known one of the uh, the earlier victims, Margaret Vaughn. His apparent uh, acquaintance with the area and the victims soon placed him under suspicion. When asked where he was during the evening before, he claimed he was with his girlfriend. But she told the detectives she had spent the night alone in her home. Like, you know, he wasn't here. That inconsistency triggered more intense questioning and investigators located a witness who had seen Christopher with Dowd in a bar on the same night that she had been killed. A prostitute who had apparently lied initially, you know, initially to police finally admitted that she too had seen them together outside the bar while another all of a sudden, you know, prostitute placed him coming out of the alley by the fish store. She even claimed, you guys ready for this? Dude was sweating and had a large knife in his belt. Like, you know, 
She just forgot to mention, you know, a guy coming out of the alley with a knife about the same time someone was murdered there. Now, you know, I don't, re- I don't really buy it, but you know, what do I, what do I know? It seems like, a, seems like a far-fetched story here that you just kind of remember these, you know, three people all of a sudden just remember seeing this, this transaction go down. It's like, oh, that's strange. Um, a search of his apartment turned up clothing with a very minute amount of blood on it. Like real minute. Um, Christopher called a friend at the store to tell them that the police suspected him. That person who remained anonymous told the newspapers that the boss had told Christopher to go clean up the blood in the alley. So of course he had blood on his clothing. So he's trying to say like, that's not really a link there. Others who worked with him kind of vouched for his good character and humanitarian nature, feeling that uh, it was wrong to pin these murders on him. Christopher's landlord also confirmed these positive impressions, saying only that he sometimes made well, just a little too much noise. But get this, even though Leonard Christopher was a black man and not a mid- middle-aged white man seen with all these other victims, on May 5th, he was arrested anyways and arraigned on charges of robbery, abuse of a corpse, murder, and possession of an instrument of crime. And he was held with no bail. No, you stand right here, guy. On June 20th, um, they proceeded. And Leonard Christopher was ordered to stand trial for the Dowd murder since the ev- evidence was deemed sufficient. Two women who knew him said they had seen him that night, right? Those two ladies we had talked about. One, Emma Lee, said that he had walked into the alley behind the fish store around 1 a.m. and she heard a woman scream. She left with a man in a car, though, you know, also known as a John, you know. Uh, so she didn't witness any other specific event, just that, you know, at, at 1 o'clock I saw him walk in the back. I heard a woman scream, but I'm getting ready to get my fuck on, so I just dipped out. Linda Washington, the second woman, who who was anonymous at the time, but you know she now has to testify, claimed to have seen Christopher leave the alley carrying his shirt over his arm and again sporting a knife in a sheath hanging around his waist. And I'm just going to walk around with that fucking murder weapon. Christopher's de- defense attorney, Jack uh, McMahon, stated that the witness had contradicted each other um, and their testimo- testimony would not stand up in court. Neither would the robbery charge because Dowd's purse, while open, still a cash in it. It might simply have been dropped during the attack. Despite the fact that the suspect had uh, not been proven guilty, the residents of the Frankfurt Avenue area, they were relieved to know that someone had been caught. They felt certain that their neighborhood could return to normal. They were wrong. So Christopher, jailed without bond, remember, safely locked away on September 6, 1990, when this lady, Michelle Denner, that bar patron from earlier, who was actually Michelle Martin, she was found murdered. She was 30 and lived in the fourth floor uh, efficiency apartment on Aaron Street, not far from Frankfurt Avenue. That, that street keeps coming up. Once an actual suspect in the Durkin murder, remember she was the lady who had fought over that blanket. 
she was now officially off the suspect list. She was a victim. Or just, you know, quick conspiracy theory. Ooh, I like conspiracy theories. Maybe uh, maybe she was an accomplice and someone was trying to uh, tie, tie up them loose ends, you know, with a scapegoat already arrested. Maybe, maybe, probably not. More likely her murder was simply uh, coincidental, but you never know. You know, just like to throw that out there. Um, the police called to the scene that, uh, that Saturday afternoon, found her lying on the floor. She, she had been stabbed 23 times in the chest and stomach. Once again, um, it appeared to be the work of the Frankfurt Slasher. There was no uh, sign of forced entry, as was the case with the other indoor uh, assaults. Um, and no obvious murder weapon was found at the scene or discarded nearby. The murder scene was only three blocks from where Carol Dowd had been killed, and it was the same street as the 1989 murder of Teresa Scarantino. Um, Denner Martin, whatever, um, was described as a hard-drinking, paranoid loner and was even called Crazy Michelle by people in the neighborhood. Um, she was considered somewhat unconventional, sometimes bearing, uh, barricading herself in her apartment and other times just, you know, tossing things out the window, no matter who might be standing below. Like, fuck it. Don't want that out the window. Single and hard-edged, she frequented the same bars that the previous murder victims had often gone. And she, too, was apparently a large blonde. That's a huge bitch! Uh, she was often seen in a sloppy sweatshirt and jeans and spent her time wandering from one bar to the next. She was a, you know, a bar fly. Um... Sometimes she even she even sold soft pretzels on the street, and uh, that combo apparently allegedly uh, uh, came with a side of poisson. Um, but usually she just drank all day. Um, neighbors indicated to reporters that she wasn't very friendly, and one person said that she did not um, she did not often bathe, so she was real stanky. Um, a day and a half before her death, she had left the bar with a, a a white man. You know, you know that white man that keeps coming up, and in fact. People had seen her bring men home, you know, on, se- on on several occasions. Hey, hey, I'm free love, guys. I'm all about free love. Huh? Who cares? Um. Now, people thought that, you know, perhaps the police had arrested the wrong man. After all, Christopher did not resemble, you know, the middle-aged white man seen with two other victims shortly before they were killed. And plenty of people had vouched for him as this decent, friendly guy. If the police had falsely arrested him, that meant the real killer had been free all this time and likely struck again. On October 27th, 50 citizens of the Philadelphia, they solemnly marched the rain-soaked streets of Frankfurt, following the routes they imagined the killer of nine potential victims had taken. So it was like another little visual thing. They're like, man, maybe we missed something. Um, It was windy and cold apparently that night. Um, people didn't seem to mind. They went past the fish market, um, the newspaper reported, behind uh, which one body was found butchered with a knife, past a bar that four um, of the dead had patronized, and along Eric Street, where the last victim was found stabbed to death early last month. They lit candles, they sang hymns and prayed, creating a tribute to you know the woman who couldn't be there. They also uh, read from the Bible and spoke out against the violence in the neighborhood. In fact, homicide detectives patrolled the streets, watching those women who went in and out of the bars who looked like potential victims. They hoped to get a glimpse of a man who might act 
or look suspicious. Having investigated more than 50 men who were seen leaving the bars with women, they had two men under surveillance and leads on a third, yet with no clear pattern to the killings in terms of a time frame uh, or, or victim type, they were basically working blind. They found it surprising that in each and every case, no one had seen a man with blood on him in the streets. All the victims had been viciously stabbed. Their attacker must have had quite a lot of blood on him. They had a, a, a composite picture from witnesses, and while they had received many calls, no one had turned uh, in a person who seemed a, a, a real viable suspect. You know, it was just kind of kind of the usual. Uh, numerous, numerous elderly women had pointed to the SCP, uh, SCPTA bus drivers, and neighbors with a grudge had guided police towards uh, someone who made them angry. Even psychics provided empty assistance because, you know, I mean, why can't the psychic see it? And uh, one tip offered uh, witchcraft as, as a motive. In fact, a cult did practice in a park close by, so that lead was not, you know, entirely discounted. The best clue investigators had was an identification of um, the manufacturer of that shoe print. Remember that shoe print that was left uh, at, that, at one of those murder scenes? They did find a man who had a similar shoe that, were, that was the right size, who knew that victim, but ultimately was not linked to the crime. So with all this going on, you know, different leads coming from different women, white, a white dude seen another murder taking ple- uh, place, even while this dude was in jail, obviously people started calling for Leonard Christopher to be released. But in November, his murder trial began anyway. They're like, fuck it, now I'm going forward. Um, so in the court of common pleas, a jury heard the opening statements on November 29th, 1990, shortly after Thanksgiving. Christopher was dressed in a gray suit and black uh, horn-trimmed glasses, uh, looking as if papers reported kind of studious, you know, look, looking good. Uh, he seemed a far cry from a demented killer thought to be running around Frankfurt, raping and killing women over the past five years. Assistant District Attorney Judith Rabino declared that he was a vicious killer who used a Rambo-style knife to slash and kill Carol Dowd in the alley behind the fish market where he worked. She admitted she had no witnesses to the actual murder, but, you know, she had people who saw things on the street. These witnesses would provide sufficient circumstantial evidence to prove the defendant's guilt. Christopher was, was seen with Dowd in the alley, and a witness heard the woman scream. He was seen leaving the alley. Dow was found dead immediately afterwards. Had to be him, right? He was also seen with a knife. And his clothing had blood on it. You know, one speck of blood. One spot of blood. In addition, he had lied about his whereabouts the night he had made uh, other peculiarly... Um, I'm sorry. He lied about his whereabouts that night and had made other peculiar statements about these murders, apparently. So, I mean, it, it does sound like some pretty damning evidence. Definitely that last part, you know, when, you, when your whereabouts, when you lie about your whereabouts, that's a huge red flag. Um, now, defense attorney Jack McMahon, no relation to Joe, um, told the jury that Christopher was known as a mild-mannered person, a well-liked, and had no history of violence. He indicated that since police were under pressure to solve the case, they might have rushed the judgment. The prosecutor objected to this, and Judge George 
uh, Ivins cautioned McMahon not to stray from the facts. McMahon continued with his argument anyway, indicating that there were six cases prior to Dowd's murder that bore uh, enough similarities to be judged the work of a serial killer. But the prosecutor again objected to this line of reasoning. Now, clearly McMahon was trying to go um, for reasonable doubt by um, talking about the murder um, that had occurred while Christopher was in jail awaiting trial. Again, an objection. So the judge ordered a sidebar and the attorneys began to shout at each other. But McMahon was eventually allowed to uh, continue his line of reasoning. Um, Pressure sometimes presents unreliable results, he stated. Um, McMahon said that the police had relied on evidence that, in stronger cases, would have been discarded. And that had been... Um, and that had been a mistake. It was just a mistake. The witnesses were prostitutes and junkies with lengthy, with lengthy arrest records, each and nine aliases between them all. So these two or three women arrested multiple times, known prostitutes, known jo- uh, junkies, have aliases. Come on. I mean, not the most reliable of witnesses. He could not imagine anyone urging the jury to believe them beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, Lee had admitted to lying twice to police about the incident, initially denying that she knew anything because she apparently liked the defendant. But that, in reality, made her an unreliable witness. When the police arrested Christopher, McMahon pointed out there were no injuries on him and no physical evidence linked him to the crime scene. No murder weapon was recovered ever. No so-called Rambo knife, you know. There was no reason to view him as the murderer, but it wasn't as simple as that. Prosecutor Rabino countered McMahon's presentation with the fact that when the store opened on the morning after Dowd's murder, Christopher had reported to his boss, um, Jesea Fang, that a white woman about 45 years old had been murdered in the alley, but the police had not yet revealed those details to anyone. In fact, just a few days after the stabbing death, he had also made a strange comment to Fang. Maybe I killed her. Although he quickly recanted, it was a remark that um, his employer would remember, especially because he seemed quite serious about it to her. Um, Christopher, Fang said, had gestured with the motion of gutting a person as he described the crime. He claimed to have seen a white man on the street at 1 a.m., but no one else had reported that. Instead, the only witness... Um, that police had from the street that night had, like we talked about, all seen Christopher. Fang testified that Christopher had uh, told her about five days after the murder that he had been unable to sleep well because he had witnessed a murder. His speech was rambling and his manner agitated. Um, He said that he thought a white man who knew um, he'd seen it was trying to kill him. He believed that the man could get into his apartment and would hide in the closet. The next day is when Christopher was arrested. For physical evidence, the prosecution had found a tiny spot of blood, that little tiny spot of blood on Christopher's trousers, but it was too small to even type, and DNA analysis at this point was uh, still being challenged in many courts. It wasn't wasn't that reliable. It was also not yet available for, um, for such minute amounts of biological evidence. And it was quite expensive because, you know, a man's life has a price tag on it. Am I right? The police had also found a uh, smoking gun, you know, a bloodstained tissue 
<laughs> that prov- that proved to be type O, which was Dow's blood type, you know, in a driveway next to the building where Christopher's uh, apartment was. But Christopher had told police in statements, um, read to the jury, that while he was at his girlfriend's apartment, he had seen a well-dressed white man in his 40s outside that night wiping his hands on something that looked like a handkerchief or tissue. The real problem was, according to his girlfriend, again, Christopher had not been in that apartment. So how do you see a dude wiping off blood on your hands if you weren't in that apartment? I mean, it's just such a, I mean, some shit's real damning. Some shit just does not make sense. Um, the trial was short and closing arguments came quickly on December 11th. McMahon emphasized Christopher's good character and the fact that such violence, um, which he was accused of, was completely out of character for him. The prosecution offered no motive, no weapon, and no solid evidence. And his statements about the white man on the night of the murder fit the description given by other witnesses about the men they had seen with earlier victims. It just doesn't make sense, McMahon said, about the prosecution scenario. He told reporters on December 11th, after the case went to jury, um, that the case stinks. It's garbage. But Assistant District Attorney Rubino asked what motive the witness had for lying. Um, I mean, the witnesses, those, those, those ladies. In fact, some of them were friends with Christopher, including the one who had lied on his behalf to the police. There was no reason for that witness to ultimately change her story other than wanting to finally tell the truth. In addition, Rubino reminded the jury that she had presented two other witnesses who had seen Christopher talking to Dowd in the bar at, uh, at midnight of the night she was, she was murdered. She had also offered testimony from Christopher's girlfriend, Vivian Carter, that uh, he had not been with her that night, as he had claimed. Rubino closed with an emotional appeal uh, that included what Carol Dow must have experienced as she was you know, being attacked with a knife and slashed to death. She knew her death was coming. The cuts to her hands told a story. Once the arguments were done, the judge instructed the jury. They deliberated for more than four hours before uh, he ended the session and, and sequestered them for the night. By the next day, it was apparent that the jury believed the prosecution's case. On December 12th, after four more hours of deliberations, they convicted Christopher of the, fir- of, uh, the first-degree murder of Carol Dow. Christopher showed no visible reaction, but his defense um, attorney shook his head in disbelief. Although the prosecutor had asked for the death penalty, uh, he was sentenced to life in prison. His own reaction was that um, he had been railroaded. Apart from the strange admission to his boss, he had confessed to nothing. McMahon indicated that the real killer, whom Christopher, who Christopher referred to as the Northeast stalker, may still be out there. Was he right? I, I believe so. At best, there was a copycat who murdered someone after he was jailed. And before trial, and at worst, we had an, uh, an innocent man behind bars and a serial killer who was uh, never brought to justice. And, and I think it's more the latter. I and many others list the Frankfurt Slasher case as unresolved um, and unsolved. Although, obviously, I'm aware that Leonard Christopher was convicted of at least you know one murder. And, and I, I don't know if you do numbers, but one out of eight or nine is... Um, you know, like 10%, you know, a little bit more than 10%, any way you chalk it up. Um, I, I raise issues with the conviction, uh, and, and I, I point out that there there was no 
evidence tying Christopher to any of the other killings. Not saying he wasn't responsible for the um, for for the killing of Dowd, but was um, he even remotely tied to any of the others? In in the in in the book, still at large, a Philadelphia investigator was interviewed who said that Christopher is is still a suspect in the other murderers, but there are other suspects as well. And it's been you know thirty years. Antonia uh, Mendoza does not include the Frankfurt slasher in his book about unsolved serial killers, although the victim count is certainly significant enough to do so. He buys the outdated and admitted erroneous FBI statistic that there are between 35 and 50 serial killers at loose in the U.S. at at, at any given time. While it is true that a number of murders that appear um, to have a predator um, in common are unsolved, it's generally not a good idea just to accept that they must be the work of a serial killer. And we can we can turn to like the bungled Boston Strangler case um, as a good one to keep in mind. There are good suspects for many of those 11 murders. And technically, we could still consider at least some of those murders um, in that series unsolved. At any rate, the semen found on the, uh, on the last Boston Strangler victim, Mary Sullivan, did not match Albert DeSalvo, who was considered to be the Strangler. In addition, his description of her murder, as well as what um, he said about some of the other crimes, was full of errors overlooked by investigators in their rush to close a frightening case, which could have easily been the possibility in this case. In short, while at least seven or eight of the Frankfurt Slasher um, murders remain unsolved, and one did take place while Christopher was in jail, again, we cannot discount a copycat or the possibility that not all the killings are related. Even in the event that they were all the work of a single killer and Christopher was not the attacker, there appears to have been no more of these particular crimes in that area since 1990. Yet significant questions remain regarding the quality of the evidence used to convict Christopher and the fact that he did not uh, match witnesses' reports of a white man seen with the other victims. The case of the other victims remain unsolved to this day, and even if there were solved, it would be too late for Leonard Christopher because he died of cancer um, while he was behind bars. In many respects, it seems that someone got away with murder. All right, that concludes this episode. I'll be back next Monday. Till then, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. I'll catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion.
Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you.